Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, so this week I, I heard an Arabian proverb that I'd never heard before, and I've just been turning it over and over in my mind. Uh, it's this, it says this, sunshine alone produces deserts. I'd never heard that phrase before. Uh, and the more I thought about it, the more intriguing I found it. Sunshine alone produces deserts. I think what struck me about that was, was how true it was, yes, in the natural world, a place with always sunshine, which is something we look forward to. It's something we can't wait to see when the sun is shining outside. It's what our city is, is named after in so many ways. We live in the Sunshine City, but we also live in a city where starting probably in the next few weeks, it's going to rain every afternoon at 4.30 in the afternoon. It's going to rain for 30 minutes, and then everything's going to be fine, and it's going to be very, very humid afterwards. But in between that, we get sunshine. And if we didn't have that rain, We'd be a desert. Sunshine alone produces deserts. I think what's so fascinating about that is not just how true that is of um, our hearts or of the world, but of our hearts as well. If we only have good times, if we only let the good times roll, we won't have any depth. There won't be anything more to us will be deserts. But, but the funny thing is, is that we have a cultural allergy to struggles and trials. We don't want unexpected or unplanned discomfort. And we go to just about any length we can to avoid unplanned discomfort and unexpected trials. We do whatever we can, whether we try to control it, control our situations, whether we try to have means of escaping from it. We just, we just don't want unexpected and unplanned discomfort, which I think is what has been the weirdest part of the past few months. Because what happened to all of us? With, with almost no warning, with not a lot of warning, the rug was pulled out from underneath of us. And we all tumbled down into our own houses and are living in a world of unplanned and unexpected discomfort. There was nothing we could do to pre-plan for it. There was nothing we could do to get around it. And so what did we do? Here we are, stuck in our homes. Here we are with our unplanned and unexpected struggles. So, of course, we uh, went to our better angels and decided to show all sorts of kindness to one another, right? Well, maybe a little bit, but mostly we started to blame others for this. This is so-and-so's fault. This is such-and-such group of people's fault. This is, this is, we started to blame others. We started to get very self-righteous about how serious we were about this global pandemic and how everybody who wasn't taking it as serious as us needed to get more serious. 
And that self-righteousness bled out into other parts of our lives. Maybe that wasn't you. Maybe, maybe you weren't in that boat. Maybe you were the kind of person that decided to, to distract yourself. To make the unease and the discomfort go away. I mean, let's be honest. Tiger King was interesting for like five minutes. But what we loved about it was that it was a distraction. Animal Crossing is not a fun game. And yet it is sweeping the nation and everybody is playing it, right? Why? Because we want to distract ourselves from our discomfort. We want to distract ourselves from our unease, our struggles, our trials. We want to get away and out of the storm and back into the sunshine. But sunshine alone produces deserts. There's something most of us have not done in the course of this unexpected, unplanned trial. What we haven't done is taken time and given space to this question. Could God be using this trial in my life specifically? Could God be using this trial in my life specifically? See, we are unwilling to look at trials, struggles, and discomfort in a new way. We just keep looking at them the old way. We keep dealing with them the way that we have always dealt with them, by running away, by trying to control, or by trying to find a comfortable way out of them. But all that is, is wishing the storms would go away and we would have sunshine again. Sunshine alone produces deserts. A Christian life that is marked only by good times and comfort is the Christian life that will also be marked by future. James gives us another way of looking at trials, another way to think about this. So if you're at home, I'm going to read three verses this morning out of James chapter 1. Um, I'd ask that you would stand. I know it's only going to be for a second, but I think it helps tune our bodies in to what we should be doing with our hearts. And so let's stand together as I read James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James, the brother of Jesus, says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago, intended for us this morning. Have a seat. James is talking about a completely different way of accounting for our trials. He doesn't see them as something we should run from, control, or ignore. Rather, he says something that's kind of abrasive, if you let it sink in. He says, I want you to count everything, all of your trials, all of the struggles, all of the hardship that has come out of COVID-19, I want you to count that as pure 
joy. I want you to count the loneliness you have felt as pure joy. I want you to count the anxiety over your business and your job that you have felt as pure joy. I want you to count the struggles in parenting your children as pure joy. Let's be honest. That is really hard to hear. And James seems to understand that. Because James doesn't address this to us as somebody who is coming in over the top and saying, yes, do this like I do this. No, he says he's in this boat together. What does he call the people that he's writing this letter to? What does he call us? He calls us brothers and sisters. He is in this with us. He knows that this is not the normal way of doing things. But he says, brothers and sisters, count it as pure joy when you face all sorts of trials. Now, maybe you're here this morning and, and you grow up, grew up in the church and then you walked away. Or, or maybe your story is that you just kind of dabbled with church in high school, but it's not really something you claim to believe in. I think it's verses like this that oftentimes play a part in stories like that. Uh, because verses like this are easily misconstrued and easily abused. I mean, think about it. James is calling for us to count struggles, trials, and hardships as joy. To when we do the mental math, account those things as joy. That sounds like it's encouraging hypocrisy at best and paving over our emotions at worst. But that's not what this is. And I want to share with you why that's not. Because for many of us, that's what we hear. We hear these verses and we get a sinking kind of, no, that's not reality feeling. Maybe it's because this verse was used to make us stop feeling feelings in a situation. Or maybe it's because this, these verses seem just completely out of touch with anything that was attainable in our Christian life. But James says, brothers and sisters, join me in considering a pure joy when you face trials. What he's doing is not telling us to paint a smile over top of our pain. He's not telling us to pretend that this doesn't hurt. He's not telling us to man up or suppress any of these feelings that it's bad. No, he's telling us that those feelings that you're feeling are real. The, the struggles that you're having, the trials that you're having are real. But I want you to think of them and consider them in a slightly different way. I want you to consider that God is at work in these trials. That God is at work. If you're not a Christian, what's your way of putting all this together? What is it that is helping you make sense out of all of the world right now? I think there's a lot of different answers for that. 
But how does your answer give an account for, for why is this all happening? And so that's what I want you to consider. But what I want all of us to consider is that James is inviting us not to ignore our pain. James is inviting us not to minimize the emotions that we're feeling in this moment. But rather, James is inviting us to consider what is God up to. We're experiencing pain. We are experiencing trial and hardships in unique ways that none of us have ever faced before. What is God up to? And James starts to answer that question for us. Why is God doing this? He is doing this because he is testing our faith in order to create steadfastness. That's what God is at work doing. The trials that are coming into our life, God is placing us in this moment in order to create steadfastness by testing our faith. You see, James doesn't see suffering as something that God lets happen. As something that God panics about, is trying to fix. No, God is testing our faith. God is, it's not like God and suffering comes into our life and it's like that moment when you're cooking and you start to burn something or the recipe starts to go bad and then you have to scramble and figure out, okay, how do I, uh, okay, these eggs have gone really bad. Okay, I'm no longer making fried eggs. These are going to be scrambled eggs. And you, you panic and try to rescue the recipe. God is not looking at our suffering going, oh, oh, uh, okay, next we're adding paprika. Yeah, 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 that'll fix it. God is not trying to rescue our suffering, but is actually intentional in using it in our lives. He's doing that to test our faith. Now, this is not testing our faith as if we're having to take an exam. This is not God looking back at you and going, hmm, what did you get for number 37? Hmm, what's going on? No. The word testing here carries with it the idea of refining precious metal. It's taking that, that 10 carat ring and turning it into a 14 carat ring. But in order to do that, what you have to do, it takes heat and time. It takes heat to heat that metal up to begin to separate the beautiful gold from the dross, the junk that is contained within that gold. That is what God is doing with our faith. He is refining it. See, but in order to refine gold, in order for gold to become more beautiful, you can't just polish it up a little bit. It has to be refined in fire and through time. And that is what God is doing. God is working steadfastness in us. Intentionally. Refining our faith in the crucible of struggles, trials, and discomfort. You will never experience a depth of faith you will never experience the steadfastness that comes along with the gospel if you don't allow trials to have their work. 
when trials come along, we sort of treat them like the children's book about going on a bear hunt, right? Okay, trial's coming up. Maybe I can run away from it. Can't run away from it. Maybe I can, maybe I can hide from it. Can't hide under it, right? Ah, here's what I'll do. I'll just ignore it and pretend that it's not there. We try to manage our trials by running away, by controlling them, or by ignoring them. Each one of those common responses that all of us do prevents us from experiencing the steadfastness that comes from a refined faith of God letting the trials have their work. Because God has a goal in mind, and it's not just that we will be steadfast, but that we would let steadfastness have a full effect. That our steadfastness would have a full effect. And so we sort of climb this sort of staircase where we begin by seeing our trials as something where God is at work. And then as we see God is at work, we don't run away from them, but rather we let God use them to refine us. And as he uses them to refine us, we become more steadfast. And as we rely on him in steadfastness, we become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, don't get it, don't get it twisted. God is at work in us, but what he's at work in us to create is not some sort of moral perfection. Is not some sort of, I'm better than you. Not some, any sort of thing where it is us not sinning anymore. Rather, when he talks about us, being perfect and complete and lacking in nothing, what he is talking about is the idea of a ship in a harbor. And before that ship leaves harbor, it's got a number of things to do. It has to have its sail patched. And all the crew has to be outfitted with all the things they're going to need. And then they have to take all of the provisions that they're going to need for the trip. And they have to make sure their ballast is right. And they have to do all of these things. But once they do them all, once they are ready, that ship is perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. But then that ship does not sit in the harbor. The captain doesn't say, all right, we're perfect and complete and going nowhere. No. What's the saying? Ships are safest in harbor, but that's not what ships are for. No, that ship that is perfectly equipped, that has all its crew and its sail well-maintained, then goes out to its next destination. And what happens on the way to its next destination? The crew eats the food. The supplies dry up. The sail may take some damage. So what do they do when they get into the next fix the sail, outfit the crew, and they resupply the ship so that then the ship is again lacking in nothing, perfect and complete. What the steadfastness of Jesus is leading us to is not some sort of inward reflection where we go, look what I have done, but rather preparing us to be able to go out in our steadfastness to love others around us, to love and serve others around And that's what's happening here because that is exactly the story of Jesus. He doesn't stand afar off and say, yeah, you should do this. But rather, we actually see this exact thing 
using some of these exact words at work in Jesus' life on the darkest days. Jesus went through this in the midst of his betrayal and crucifixion. Jesus, as he prayed and labored in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was tempted to walk away, as he was, as he was catcalled from people standing around his cross, that if, if you're really the Son of God, take yourself off of that cross. The writer of Hebrews uses the language that James is using here. What is it that kept Jesus on the cross? It was the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross, suffering the loss of all things. Jesus did that. Jesus went to the cross because he was counting something else as joy. You know what that joy was, church? You know the joy that kept Jesus on the cross as he suffered and felt separation and the wrath of God? You know what, you know what kept Jesus going in that moment? The joy that was set before him. The joy that is spending eternity with you. Because of how much he loves you. Not because of how much he loves what you do. Not because of how much he loves how smart you are. Not because of how gifted you are or how many things you've done for the kingdom. Not by how well you perform and how many tasks you're able to accomplish. Rather, the joy of being with you. Just you, the real you. That's what Jesus accounted as so significant that he endured the cross and suffered the shame. So let's trust him who loves us so well. Let's follow him in seeing trials in a new way, as being able to consider maybe God is doing something else. A way that sees joy not as comfort and ease, but sees joy as genuine Christ-likeness. Church, may we reconsider our trials.